Welcome to Teach the Word. Thanks for joining today. Hi, welcome to Teach the Word. Today we're going to be talking about God, his, um, who he is, things about him. Uh, so to start off with one of the most uh, well-known verses in the Bible is John 3.16, which is, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, Whosoever believes in him should not perish, should have eternal life. Um, that cues us in on part of his identity. Um, at the core of his identity is love. Um, if you go to um, the first epistle, the letter of First John, chapter 4, you have a kind of remarkable statement. And that is... Uh, God is love. Let's just look at that. First uh, John 4, 8, I believe. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Then if you drop down a little more, verse 16. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Very strong uh, language. It's it's not saying that God is loving. It's saying God is love, um, and that's a huge aspect or, uh, of who He is. There are other uh, truths about God. That is one. Um, we'll try to go over a few, maybe hit as many as we can here before we get to. Uh, an hour and then stop. So, love. Another one we have here is uh, wrath. Very much it would be contrasted to love, but you find both in the pages of the Bible. So you have the, the God being love, but then you have this aspect of the, the wrath of God. Um, wrath is a fancier English word for anger, which used on a more normal scale, but what does that mean that he has uh, anger or wrath? Um, means that sin is a problem to him, that he will uh, deal with it. Um, let's look at uh, the when God's talking about the sin of a nation group or a group of nations called the Amorites, Genesis 15 onwards, uh, a few passages about this, but let's just look. Genesis 15, God's talking to Abraham. And what does he say? He says, first start in verse 13. Uh, then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years, and also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as you as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it shall come to pass when the sun... All right, so that, that's what I was trying to get at, that phrase, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It's this idea that God's uh, wrath 
this anger towards sin. It's actually a, a, an aspect, maybe even of the fact that he is love or is loving, and that it plays itself out with love together. So he he this group of people, the Amorites, is incurring his wrath. They have practices that are not good, and he's waiting, actually waiting for for them. He's actually giving them a four hundred year period. Uh, for them to, to, to change. So it's part of his, his love, his anger is, is not acted on. He's not quick to anger. That's the, that's the thing that the phrase used that God is slow to anger. 400, in this case, 400 years slow, but waiting for them to change. Um, if you look at, uh, you know, in Leviticus, he'll talk about how the land that they live in is, is having to um, vomit them out. I believe this is in Leviticus 18. Yeah, 18.24. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things. He, he had this, you know, the previous 23 verses are listing things that the Amorites do that when the Israelites enter the land, God is forbidding them to do. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things. For by all these, the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled. Therefore, I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. For all these abominations the men of the land have done, who were before you, thus the land is defiled lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. So this is this is showing, you know, just this story of the Amorites, God's mercy aspect, or the part of his love, the slow, slowness of his anger over, this is from 400 years later, from when he was talking to Abraham to when he's talking to Moses. So that's the slow aspect of God's anger, but the fact that, his anger means, as part of his love, he must deal with what is not right, what is wrong in the world. And uh, and that that means coming in judgment. Yes, he, he comes in salvation. That is the aspect of his love. But as he offers out that extension of salvation, there's a, there's a, there's a limit to the, to the grace, so to speak. He waited, waited 400 years. For change in the Amorites, and change didn't happen. So eventually, he has to come in judgment. That's what that's what wrath means or anger when it's replied to God. Let's look at one more passage. I'm not sure that I have this quite right, but it's Deuteronomy 20. I think it's 16 through 18. Just as something relating to these this concept. Yeah, here it is. But of the cities of these peoples, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. There's several groups. The Amorites are a catch-all term. Just as the Lord your God has commanded you, 
lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods, and you shall sin against the Lord your God. So God uses man. Humans are, are instruments of his wrath. In this case, the people under Moses' leadership were instruments of his wrath to execute his anger on an entire uh, area, groups of people. After him being very slow to that anger, a 400 years slow, and waiting, wanting ultimately, because it's not consistent with his character, because of his love, wanting them to change their behavior, but it didn't happen. And so, but that's what wrath means. He comes at some point. Um, you can see uh, ish, uh, instances of God's wrath uh, averted after the waiting and the warning where, where he changes. Um, if you look at uh, the book of Jonah, this is a, the Ninevites are the people group here, and, and they are wicked in God's eyes, and he is, uh, feels that he must destroy them. But he wants to, see, he's, in this case, he sends this, this man, Jonah, to tell them, look, one last chance. Either stop what you're doing, change, turn, or, or I'm going to destroy you. And it's uh, kind of a remarkable little book. Let me turn there. It's uh, towards the end of the Old Testament. There's a lot of going on, a lot going on in the Book of Jonah, more than just God's wrath. But uh, you know, there's there's a whole. It's all about prejudice too because Jonah has no reason to want these people to be saved because these are the people who come and raid his his country and carry off people as slaves and kill people they're, they're the they're the people that he has every reason to hate but he goes as a messenger of God's mercy no. because God Tells him to. He's not not particularly willing, and he's actually quite angry. But this isn't really about Jonah. This is about God and and his how he has how his anger is how he withholds his anger. Um, so if you look in Jonah, he says, uh, very beginning, to God speaking to Jonah, verse two of chapter one: Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. That's the idea of, of his anger. He has to deal with evil as it as it as it arises. It's it, the earth, perhaps, cries out for the evil done on it, vomits its people out. We saw that image in Leviticus. Well, there's an outcry that's rising up to the Lord from this people group. Uh, if we go on, we see in, in chapter three. He, he eventually a lot happens in this little story, but eventually he shows up there and. The people of Nineveh listened to his message. So the people of Nineveh believed God. They, this is chapter 3, verse 5. Proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, 
But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let every one turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So there you have God not acting in anger, relenting from his anger, or turning from his anger, because men repent and turn from their wickedness. His anger is tied to the sin of man, the wickedness of man. Um, incidentally, in this passage, Jonah is quite angry about it. So if you go into chapter 4, you have this conversation going on between Jonah and God about how Jonah's mad. This is Jonah's anger. And if you look down at verse uh, 9 of the next chapter, then God says to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry? He said, It is right for me to be angry. But the Lord said to him, You've had pity on a plant. So this is, they're talking about a plant. Jonah's mad that God destroyed the plant. You have pity on a plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons, which cannot discern between their right hands and their lefts, and much livestock? God's concerned not just about the people in Nineveh, but the animals in Nineveh. So ultimately, let's just wrap up this idea of wrath. Uh, we, every human sins, we all have wickedness in us. So we all are under, are subject to the wrath of God. Yes, his wrath is, is very slow and he gives much time towards, uh, for repentance. But if you look, the whole point of the, the letter to the Romans is, is to build the case that we're all, we're all bad. Not just the Gentile nations, also the Jews, and we, we are in need of rescue. That's the idea of Romans. Go one, uh, Romans one eighteen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But the good news about the book of Romans and really the entire Bible is, is this, the gospel message that God has... Um, prepared a way for his wrath to be appeased. In other words, for our, our wickedness to be transferred onto Jesus in his death. And for us to not have to experience God's wrath as a result, Christ experienced it on the cross. Um, if you look at Romans 3.23, you'll see what I'm saying about everybody is a sinner, uh, is the point in this book. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But uh, the idea is that, um, the idea is not, oh, I'll beat you over the head, you're a sinner, you're under God's wrath. It's no, God is merciful and there's a way uh there's a way out. So that, that's a good segue into the next attribute one to talk about is mercy. What's it mean that God is merciful? So well, what it means is that what we actually deserve, which is his wrath, he withholds. Um, 
everyone has been provided with a way of escape from the, with what they're due because of their wickedness. That's the idea of his mercy. So let's look further in Romans chapter 10. You'll have uh, what's this thing about uh, all who confess Romans 10 9, verses 9 and 10. Then if you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. But whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This idea that God, just like with the Ninevites, God has a mechanism through the whole thesis of the book of Romans is this is this is a mystery that's being revealed. God's mechanism for offering mercy that that we, we in time past he could offer mercy, but he could still be just because he has this mechanism which has now been revealed. That's transferring the sin onto Christ. That's kind of, if you read the whole book, it's this thesis. But the idea is that God is merciful, and those who call upon him uh, are saved. If you look in the Peter, Peter, one of Peter's epistles, you see him kind of very succinctly stating this, this idea that uh, in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the cross is the mechanism for, for the mercy The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is not (laughs) what I thought it was, but that's that's applicable. Uh, That God is waiting, waiting, waiting to. He's not. He's not going to. end the grace period quickly because he's he's slow to his wrath and part of his mercy he's waiting to extend mercy he's waiting for people to come to him to call out to him any who calls on the name of the lord shall be saved he's waiting for those to call out so he can extend that mercy is the idea um what when where have we seen this um well the ark is a good example of this so if you look in genesis 5 you have or Genesis 6, you have the setup for the passage of Noah's Ark where the world is exceedingly wicked, so wicked that God has to act. He can't, he's reached the tipping point where he can't wait anymore. You see, the Lord saw the wickedness of men was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's Genesis chapter 6. This is where God begins to act, to, to talk to Noah, to have him build the Ark. That's Genesis 6, 5. Um, if you look at other places where the, the Bible is mentioning the, the, I mean, in the New Testament, where the, the Noah's Ark story account is brought up, it's very much about uh, God's mercy waiting um, and his mercy and his having how he provided a way of escape from the flood that nobody needed to perish in that flood, because the ark was there. 
So let's see, if you look at, let's just look first in Luke chapter 17, where Jesus himself is talking about the, the Noah's Ark, uh, Noah and his Ark, 1728. Likewise, also in the days, where am I? I mean, that's, that's wrong. 27, here we are. As it was in 26, Luke 17, 26 through 27. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. This is when this is Jesus talking about his return, when he's coming a second time in judgment. Like it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. And then it talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, and then it dropped down to 30. Even so it will be in the day of the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, I'm in 31 now, he who is on the housetop, and has goods that are in the house, let him not come down and take them away. And likewise, the one who's in the field, let him not turn back. So it goes on, but the idea of this passage is that Jesus is going to come again. He's going to come in judgment. But right up until he comes in judgment, mercy is open. You know, there's the option to enter the ark, the option to, to accept him, to call on the name of the Lord. And just right up until Noah entered the ark, there was the option for people to turn from from their ways and to enter that ark and to be saved from the flood. But the day he entered the ark and the ark was sealed, that ended. That's the idea. Uh, you see where it's mentioned elsewhere that uh, Noah was uh, actually what we just read uh, in in. First Peter, or Second? No, we were we were in Second Peter. This is First Peter. Another Peter's talking about the flood. How Noah? I think this is where he's talking about Noah's preacher of righteousness. Um, so maybe not. So this is where are we here? Verses First Peter three verse twenty. Were disobedient. This is talking about uh, spirits who were disobedient when once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. You got the divine long suffering, God, God waiting, in which a few, that is eight, were saved through water. This is also an antitype which now saves us baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus. So you got that. This is like a foreshadowing of. Of the situation we're in now. They were in that situation waiting for the ark. We're in a situation now where we have an offer of salvation that's calling on the name of the Lord. It, and it's, if we don't accept it, we'll be destroyed in the coming judgment, just like those who were destroyed in the flood. It's that idea that Peter's saying here about the mercy of God. Um, so where I'm looking for Noah preaching righteousness to them is actually in Second Peter. So Noah, Noah is a preaching to this people group, the people around him, to 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 turn from their evil, their wickedness. So I think it's in verse five of chapter two, Second Peter, verse five. Um, and this is God 
God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So if Noah is a preacher of righteousness, who is he preaching to but the people around him to, to, to return and repent? But they don't. So that's a, that's a really good, I think, example of God's mercy is, is Noah's ark, Noah building it for 120 years or, or some somewhere in there, uh, a long period of time. We know that, that he shows up and he talks to Noah at least 100 years before the flood actually shows up. Um, the passage right before God starts talking to Noah, talks about how Noah was 500 years old when he had these three sons, and then the flood passage, Noah's 600 years old. So somewhere in that 100-year period. He's building it. It's a very visible thing. He's preaching righteousness as he's building it. But men do not turn. Um, you know, so, yes, uh, God is merciful and he has offered a way of salvation. We have one today. The whole New Testament's about that. But if we just bring up, say, one verse to end this idea of God's mercy discussion with. Let's look at Timothy. Uh, if you see 1 Timothy chapter 2, the mercy aspect of God, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one Mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Jesus has given himself as a ransom for us. But we have to call out. We have to turn to him. So, and if you haven't, do. Because you don't know when grace ends. You don't know when God comes in judgment. You don't know when the flood pours down upon us. So, Time, time is running out. We don't know when it ends. We don't know when the mercy ends. But the ransom has been paid for us. Let's look at holiness. Holiness is, is another thing, way in which the Bible describes God. I mean, it describes, uh, a lot of things are described using the term holy, but God is one of them. Uh, well, what does it mean? It means that God is altogether, uh, utterly, totally different than us in an extremely good way. Uh, let's look at Revelation 15. You have uh, verses 3 and 4. Then they, this is a song. It's called the Song of Moses the servant of God, the song of the Lamb. Here's the song. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been made manifest. So in one sense, only God is holy, uh, in, in the sense this song is talking about. He is altogether utterly different, marvelous, mighty, true, just, um, and you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. That's the sense in which we're talking about um, 
God being holy. Um, however, it, it can, it's used in other ways in the New Testament, so let's just just point at, point that out. You know, it, t- it talks about people who are you know living or pursuing godly lives are described as holy. Uh, you see that in Romans, which chapter six. We'll just point that out, and we'll move on. Read it. Clumsy with my flipping. Romans 6. What verse is that? 22. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your you have your fruit to holiness and to the end everlasting life. So there's a more we as as believers are bearing a fruit of holiness because we're pursuing God. Um, and the term saints uh, used throughout the Bible is, is in many ways for, to describe Christians has a sense to it of holy ones. That's uh, a different word in English, I know. But um, it also, holy also describes objects that are um, devoted to God. This has to do more with the ceremonial aspects of the temple or tabernacle kind of worship system than it does uh, our daily lives. But it's a sense in which the word holy is applied to things uh, in the Bible. Uh, I could just give you an example of that from Leviticus chapter 17, verse 12. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, no one among you shall eat blood. No, this is not right. No, that's not right. This is about not eating blood. So that's a broken reference there. Nonsensical reference. Um, that makes you wonder what on earth was I driving at with that reference. It's all about blood. Well, I don't know that it's that important because we're trying to talk about God. So, but there, I was just trying to show that holy has a wider range of meaning. And uh, I did a poor job of showing that. But I'm not going to rescind my, you know, the claim that it does have at least three kind of meaning senses in the Bible. One is its application to God, who's altogether totally, utterly different in this good way. One, another application to people who are pursuing godliness, pursuing being like God, trying to please God. Um, and another, an application to objects which are devoted to God. Uh, fortunately, I didn't really demonstrate that with a verse because my reference is wrong for that point. But that's, that's my point. So, but about God, uh, let's just look at, for, for an example of this, um, the uh, Israelites, where God is is among them, among their camp, right? Uh, but and he walk, 
let's just read the passage. It's, it's in Deuteronomy. It's, it's, it's a neat passage. God is saying how, you know, I'm, I'm with you as you're traveling out of Egypt into Canaan. I'm walking among you. And uh, because I'm holy, you're going to have to do certain things different than you would. Uh, Deuteronomy 23, 9-14. When the army goes out against your enemies, then keep yourself from every wicked thing. If there is any man among you who becomes unclean by some occurrence in the night, he's talking about a nocturnal emission, then he shall go outside the camp, he shall not come inside the camp. But it shall be when evening comes that he shall wash with water, when the sun sets he may come into the camp. Also, you shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out, and you shall have an implement among your equipment, that when you sit down outside you shall dig with it and turn over your refuse. Talking about having a latrine far away removed because because of God's holiness he can't handle the excrement. For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. Therefore your camp shall be holy that he may not may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. So the camp has to be holy because God is holy. And what does it mean for the camp to be holy? It means nobody who's had a, a, a issue coming out of them, whether blood or semen or anything, they have to go outside the camp. Nobody who's had who, who, no poop and pee, that has to be outside the camp. Uh, no worshiping of other gods, that would defile them. Um, I think that's a good picture of it. God's holiness is a total difference. He's altogether utterly different, but it, but it's a good difference. Uh, if you uh, look at, at some of the laws that Moses was given, there's laws about how you can't mix things. You get, uh, like you can't have a garment made of two different fabrics, so you can't have a field sewed with two different kinds of seeds uh, because of God's holiness. Very, very interesting. Uh, so let's look at those law, those passages. If you look at Leviticus 19. This is the ordinance, starting in verse 2, of the law which the Lord commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring you a red heifer without blemish, in which there is no defect, on which a yoke has never come. I wonder if this, this, this is another one of these passages that is... Uh, Just flip. I wonder if my two references are flipped. Um, let's just look. Where, where, why is this so? All right. So, what is going on here? Okay, I'm in Numbers. That would help if I was in the right book, huh? So, every one of you shall reserve... Uh, speak... Uh, here, I think, I'm, I think I flipped my references. So, Leviticus 17, verse 2. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying... And if you drop down to 
Tua, where are we here? Verse uh, 2, 19. No, there is no 19. Where are we? Here we are. Chapter 19, verse 19. Yeah, sorry. Speak to the congregation of the children of Israel, verse 2. Leviticus 19, 2. Speak to the, all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. 19, 2. Then you drop down to verse 19. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. You shall not sow your field with mixed seed, nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come upon you. Have the mixing. Because, why? You don't do those things because... You shall be holy, in verse 2, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 19. Sorry about my confusion. You get one reference wrong, flusters you. Um, this, is a, uh, this is true of God, but it, but it means that um, as people who, who set our hearts on pleasing God and following God, that we're called to, to, the, to this to emulate or to to be like God in this way, to, to pursue holiness. Um, and you'll see that um, throughout the New Testament, um, if you look at Titus 2, just as an instance, a four instance, Titus 2.14. We have Christ who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people who are zealous for good works. So that's holiness, uh, and that makes believers peculiar on this earth, a peculiar people. Why are they peculiar? Because they have a zeal for good works. Um, why must believers be this way? Peculiar, because of who God is, and, and if, if you if you look throughout the book of Leviticus, which I've been stumbling around reference-wise, you'll see repeated over and over again to the to the nation of Israel: "Be holy, because I am holy. Be holy, because God is holy." And the same thing is a charge given to uh, Christians in the New Testament uh, by Peter. If you look in First Peter. Chapter 1, verse 15, he's actually quoting Leviticus. Um, he says, But he who has called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So that's, that's that. Let's see, it's, that's holiness. So we've, we've talked about God's character and his love, and being loving, his, his wrath, or his anger towards wickedness and sin, and has to act to stop it. Uh, we've looked at his... Mercy, where he offers um, people uh, a way of escaping his wrath. Um, and we look at his holiness, how he's, he's just different and it's good. And how we're called higher towards that holiness. Now there's some other uh, attributes that are really different uh, from any other being. One of these is that he's all present or always present. Uh, one is that he has all knowledge. Uh, one is that he's all powerful. Um, but let's look first at uh, power. So if you look at Ephesians 
beginning of Ephesians, you'll see how it's talking about Christ's uh, position. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? far above all principality and power, might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. God is all powerful. He has, he's higher than any other power and all powers that be are under him. That's the point of that passage. But it's a good thing. It's a good thing because there are evil powers out there. God is a good power, and the evil powers will answer to him one day. That's the idea, and that's why it's a good thing. Um, this is demonstrated over and over again in the the um, Bible. If you look at, through the book of Exodus, um, you see a power showdown. Well, certainly, first half of the book, I'd say, uh, well, right from when Moses goes before Pharaoh, at the very beginning in chapter 5, right on until uh, the children of Israel leave Egypt, which is what? Um, well, their last real encounter with the, the Egyptians is at the, at the Red Sea crossing where the Egyptians, their armies destroyed in 14, and then there's the, the song about it in chapter 15. So really, that, a whole 10 chapter span in Exodus 5 through... 15 is a power showdown where the gods of Egypt are pit against God of Israel, God Almighty. And in each case, God Almighty makes a public disgrace of the gods of Egypt. Power showdown. Um, this is seen with uh, the Philistine god, Dagon. Uh, that's a shorter passage, but we could probably read that one. It's, uh, it's not 15 chapters or 10 chapters it's just a chapter i think it's what is this first samuel 6 maybe um five we'll we'll do five so in four the philistines take the ark in battle the ark of god the ark is the place which was built by the israelites for god to reside among them and then in chapter six the ark is returned to the Israelites. But chapter 5, the real power showdown. So let's just read chapter 5. And when the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenet, Etzer, this is 1 Samuel 5, verse 1, to Ashdod, when the Philistines, then the Philistines took it. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. When they arose again the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen on his face to the ground before the ark. The head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the household of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, 
they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh towards us in Dagon our God. I think you get, that's a kind of sufficient to get it. They actually do a little hot potato game where they send it to another Philistine city, and, and then they all realize we don't want the ark here because the wrath of the God of Israel is upon us because of our wickedness, as we talked about earlier, and they send it back to its people. But there's, uh, you know, all kinds of power showdowns that you, you know, there's other examples throughout the New Testament where the gods of other nations are just subject, that these powers that be, spiritual beings of which they are serving, are, are under the control and authority of the God of Israel. Um, uh, if you looked in Second Kings 18, you'd have a, a bit of a, an example of that with the Phoenicians. I don't really know what that is referring to, so I'm going to look it up. Um, I'm kind of wondering if that reference is even right. But let's just see. It's not the Phoenicians, it's the, the Assyrians. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. So, the, uh, the Assyrians come, not the, not the Phoenicians. They boast great things against the God of Israel in 2 Kings 18, Sennacherib, king of Assyria. How, you know, your God's not going to rescue you. For me, I've destroyed all these lands. None of their gods have saved them. And, uh, well, the story shows it quite clearly. Uh, Sennacherib uh, has to kind of flee with his tail between his legs because the God of Israel is mightier. We're talking about power. You see this under uh, with all kinds of military encounters and, and battles. You have... Um, over and over and over again, uh, military encounters with the God of Israel is, proves to be more powerful than the enemies. Uh, you know, f some real fascinating ones like Second uh, Chronicles twenty, where the army doesn't lead the battle, but the the worship team who's who's singing praises. Um, to God. So, I believe this is this is a uh, where are we here? Where is the Where is it? I'm trying to find a verse to read. Um, yeah, so they go out in song. I mean, just read uh, verse 21. So this is the king. When he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the to the uh, Lord and should praise the beauty of holiness. As they went out before the army, they were saying, saying, 
Praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. That's uh, a psalm. Um, so they, they probably were singing um, maybe Psalm 106. Uh, maybe they read that, that whole psalm, perhaps. But when they began to sing and to praise the Lord, God set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. So there's no there's no fighting on the behalf of the people of Judah because God does the fighting for them. They're just worshiping him. His greatness. I think it's a real fascinating passage. There's, there's lots of passages like this where you know, God brings about a military victory showing his demonstrating his power where the people of Israel don't do anything. That, that's that's just one example of it. Um, but he shows his power over you know, there's a places too. There's a there's a encounter with the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, where they're fighting with the Syrians or the Arameans, and they let's look at these passages because these are kind of nifty, I think. Um, one point they say, "Oh, he must be he's the god over the hills," uh, so we can't fight them on the hills because their gods got power over the hills. So we got to make move the battle somewhere else. So if you look at First Kings 20, this is their the, the Syrian military officers, Aramean military officers, consulting with each other how to win. Uh, verse 23, then the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods are the gods, this is First Kings 20, 23, their gods are the gods of the hills, therefore they were stronger than we, but if we fight against them in the plain, surely we will be stronger than they. So they, they're fooled into thinking that uh, God's power is somehow limited to the hills. So if you go on, they arrange a, a battle with the Israelites to be in, in, in a valley. And if you look in verse 28, Then a man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said the God, the Lord is the God of the hills, but he is not God of the valley. Therefore, I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And that's what happens as you read on. Um, we see God or Jesus having power over things uh, like hills and valleys in the Gospels. You have you see Jesus having power over the weather. Uh, you look. Let's just read uh, uh, Gospel of Mark, verse four. On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and another little boat were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and waves beat the boat so that it was already filling, but he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose, he rebuked the wind and the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm, and he said to them, Why are you so fearful? Have, how is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be? Even the wind and the sea obey him. So just showing, you know, we could you could come up with a example after example of God having power over, you know, saying the weather, Joshua, the, the Lord... Causes hailstones to rain down in a battle to, 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 to 
the weapons on his side. You know, he's definitely in control of the weather. He causes the sun to stand still. Um, Joshua 10. Uh, what else do we have? We have Psalms that, that show his total control over the weather and the and, and actually all of nature, that, that it all kind of moves at his bidding, at his word, the word that comes from his mouth. See, Psalm 147, if you looked at uh, verses 15 through 18, you see that he sends forth his word to bring the rain, he sends forth his word to bring ice, sends forth his word to melt it. Um, so, you know, we got his sovereignty is, is proclaimed over... Uh, Kings over uh, the beasts of the earth. If you looked at the end of the book of Job, chapter 38 through 41, that's all about his power over all these powerful animals that people are scared to death of. Um, if you look, there's some passages that are interesting that talk about his authority over people, that is to say, over the kings of the earth. Um, I think if you looked in Proverbs 21, we would find a classic passage on this. But you might not, because I might have the wrong reference. Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. So his power over the highest political power in the land that, that you, as a citizen or resident of your country, might be scared of, he's got power over. So, what else? That's I think that, that pretty much beats power to the cop. And I think we only got time for one more. Should we do... His omniscience, or his his all knowingness, or his all presence. Let's go with uh, omniscience. Yeah. So the idea behind omniscience is that God knows everything. So if we look at Psalm 147, verse five, you might see some of where this. out. Great is our God, mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. So that's uh, one way of stating it. Uh, there are others. Uh, if we look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater and greater than our heart, and knows all things. Another way of stating it. Um, his infinite knowledge extends to um, to the very core of our being over every creature on the face of the earth. If you look in Hebrews uh, four, we have this passage about God's discerning through his word 
Um, For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit, and of joints and marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So he knows the thoughts and the intents of your heart, just like he knew the thoughts and the intents of the whole world in the days of Noah, and he needed to destroy the world because of those thoughts and intents. And uh, what else? And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. It's kind of a scary thought, omniscience. Uh, you know, his knowledge extends into, you know, very, you know, minute little things. There's a passage about hair. He knows the number of hairs on our heads. If you look at Matthew 10, you see that. So, 10, or are we 30? It says, Do not fear, therefore you are of more value than sparrows, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So there were, the passage was talking about birds, sparrows. And he's saying God cares about the sparrows. He doesn't, they're, so, they're, they're, they're accounted of no value to humans, is what he's saying. Um, but God doesn't even let one of them fall to the ground apart from your father's will. Not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Not only is he keeping track of every bird out there, he's also keeping track of all the hair on your head, which is continually falling out. Um, whether or not Jesus was being literal in saying the very hands that you had are numbered, or you're saying the intimate knowledge that God has of you, I'm more of the opinion that he was being literal. The hairs of your head are numbered. Uh, but, you know, I can see why someone might disagree with me. Uh, if you look at Psalm 139, you see that he's got intimate knowledge of our, our whereabouts. So our hairs, our, where we come from, where we go. Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you have, starting in verse 1, or we'll start with the title. For the chief musician, the Psalm of David. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down. You know my rising up. You know, my, you understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Knows all our whereabouts and our thoughts. Uh, you know, we could go on and on. I mean, God, the, 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 his knowledge and his knowledge about the world and us is just proclaimed over and over again in Scripture. But uh, we've got, it's got every star uh, um, named. If you look for just a few Psalms, Psalm 147, 4, right before where we read at the very beginning, the Lord is infinite in verse 5. Well, in verse 4, it says, he counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Now, we all know that there's a lot of stars out there. He's got them all named. Uh, more things. So like, what is else? Uh, he knows the very words of our mouths. If we look back at the psalm we were just reading, 139. Uh, you see that in the very, very next verse from where we stopped reading, verse 4. Therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed. Psalm, sorry. Uh, for there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. His knowledge. 
knowledge of everything, but not just the words. I mean, we, we've talked about, he knows what's going on down deep down in the inside, the, the motives and the intents of our heart, like we read in Hebrews, but we see that elsewhere. Uh, see that in Chronicles, actually. Curious about this passage because not familiar with this reference. Chronicles 28.9. First Chronicles 28.9. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart. I lost my spot because I looked up at the camera. And with a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and he understands all the intents of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. He knows all the intents of your thoughts. So I think that's uh, pretty much sums it up, um, God's knowledge. Why don't we end with one verse from Isaiah, and we'll be done with attributes of God and omniscience. Isaiah chapter 46. It's a proclamation of God knowing the end. From the beginning of everything. Uh, he just knows it all. Um, Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10. There we have it. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times things that are not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand. And I will do all my pleasure. So this is actually his sovereignty over everything. He can declare what's going to happen at the beginning. He's, he can declare the end from the beginning. But it also means he knows everything, too. So there we have it, God's intimate knowledge of us. We looked at in this video his love, or how love is who he is. Uh, his uh, wrath, his mercy, his holiness, his all power, his all knowledge. And we hadn't quite got to it, but we would have if we had time. His, how he's all present everywhere could have demonstrated that as well. Thanks for listening.